Hi listener, Jay Harris here. I hope you don't mind me intruding. The pod is back next week with the new season inching closer and closer. But in the meantime, I might have something for you. Over the summer, I was granted access all areas at Brentford to find out the secrets of their remarkable rise up the leagues and how they've been so successful in doing it their own unique way. In this episode, episode two of our four-part podcast series, we get into Brentford's famed recruitment strategy, the data models they use, and how they convince prospective signings that West London should be their new home. It also features interviews with two of the B's best players, Ben Mee and Christian Norgard. If you like the episode and want to check out the rest of Accessible Areas Brentford, just search for the Athletics Documentary Podcast, Go Deeper, and you can listen to the rest. All free and in all the usual podcast places. Enjoy. The Athletic. Your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. If you've seen the film Moneyball, starring Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill, you'll know how the concept works. Buy low, sell high. The movie's based on the Oakland Athletics, a baseball team who are stuck in a rut with a very low budget. They're going nowhere fast until general manager Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt, hires Peter Brand, Jonah Hill. Brand is an economic student at Yale and he brings a new way of thinking to the recruitment process. It's called Sabermetrics, taking relevant data to answer specific questions, such as who should we hire to fill a gap in our roster? I can't believe I just said roster. Moneyball in its simplest form suggests that harnessing untapped potential is better than working with obvious talent. You could say the Athletic used the same policy when hiring me. Anyway, you're probably wondering what this has to do with Brentford. Just type in Brentford and Moneyball into Google and you'll see plenty of articles linking the two together. And this accusation of Brentford being a Moneyball team, well, it riles them. Yeah, it's it's an easy use phrase, isn't it? Um, I like the film. I like to think that I'm Brad Pitt in the film. I don't like it personally because I think it devalues what a lot of people do, specifically in the recruitment department. And there was this false perception of it was just purely down to numbers. And it ain't. I'm okay with it. I'm indifferent. Our owner hates it. In fact, his exact words to Brentford Supporters Trust Bees United were... We've been trying to downplay all the sort of moneyball nonsense. Performance director Ben Ryan gives this phrase the biggest eye roll you've ever seen. What people think about how Brentford do that stuff and what we actually do are two very different things. And, and it's all right if people think that we're this sort of crazy stat-driven club. But if you spend time with the team and around the club, you see that we're not some sort of crazy machine. We're just, we're sensible. I'm your host, Jay Harris, and this is Accessor Areas Brentford, Episode 2, How to Build a Premier League Team. Oh, and do not call it Moneyball. Got it? The acronym BMW followed Brentford around in their final two seasons in the Championship You'll remember from episode one that BMW equals Saeed Benrahma, Neil Mope and Ollie Watkins. In 2019 and 2020, all three were sold, leaving Brentford needing to buy replacements for key cogs in their system. When you're in the championship, you kind of have to sell to, to fund what you're doing. Truth is, there's always that little bit of fear. But this is Brentford and they've got their recruitment strategy nailed down to a fine art. They're playing chess and they're quite good at it. Here's how it worked. Let's take Neil Mope, the first player to leave for big money. 
Mopé is a French striker who was bought for £1.6 million from Saint Etienne in 2017. Two years later, he's off to the Premier League with Brighton for a cool £15 million. He was very, very good. By the way, that voice you heard is Christian Norgard, Brentford's new captain. He'll introduce himself properly shortly. Out with Mopé and in with Brian and Bumo for a mere £5.5 million from Troyes in France. It's not like for like, but it fits the need. And most importantly, this keeps the BMW moniker alive to the relief of pundits. Not for long though, next is Saeed Benrahma, bought for just £1.7 million from Nice in 2018. Bargain. After Brentford lose the playoff final in 2020, he sold to West Ham for £25 million. Benrahma proves trickier to replace. Because he never really managed to uh, replace Saeed. He'll eventually become Johan Visser, but by that point, Brentford are in the Premier League, so the £8.5 million they pay for him is still pretty good going. And finally, Ollie Watkins, bought from Exeter City, who were in the fourth tier of English football at the time, for £1.8 million in 2017. Watkins was sold to Aston Villa in 2020 for a huge £28 million. That's Brentford's club record sale, by the way. Ollie Watkins is replaced by Ivan Tony, who cost Brentford just £5 million from third-tier side Peterborough, although he took a lot of persuading from head coach Thomas Frank. And I said, Ivan, if you come to us, the way you play, the way you play, I think it's a perfect match. Either you score minimum 25 goals and we get promoted, and we're all in the Premier League, that's fantastic. If not, then there's a big chance you go to the Premier League anyway. Um, so it's a complete win-win. Tony goes on to score a record-breaking 33 goals that season instead, and they get promoted. So that was okay. It all sounds so simple, but trading players is complicated. Just ask Chelsea's owners, who spent half a billion pounds last season and finished in the bottom half of the league. So really the question is, how do you replace your star players, refresh the squad and keep the momentum going? Say hello to... Lee Dykes, uh, Technical Director of Brentford. Uh, largely focusing on player recruitment, uh, but also assisting Phil Giles and and working closely with Thomas on the on the long-term plan uh, for the football department. So when Lee Dykes comes in, for example, he brings new things to the table, takes what we've always done, evolves it, develops it, puts his own you know, mark on things, and has done a great job. He is equally fascinating and mysterious. I wanted to know, for like a right back, for example, what are the six things that you look out for? I can't tell you that. <laughs> I had to try. I can't tell you that. Lee joined the club in May 2019 as head of recruitment. On the surface, taking the job looked like a little bit of a step down from his previous role as sporting director at Berry. But the key difference with Berry is that it was run abysmally. Unfortunately, he didn't have a good ownership model and there was people not getting paid, including myself. The end of Berry Football Club feels like a bereavement for some fans. I feel let down at this moment in time. And in August 2019, Berry were expelled from the Football League and effectively ceased to exist. It's a far cry from the well-run, slick operation in West London. I start by asking Lee the question on everyone's lips. Can you just break down what Brentford's data model is? I get asked about it all the time. How does it work? Well, very simple. It's, you know, it's a collection of data uh, that's geared towards identifying players' abilities around the world. I can't go too further into that, unfortunately. Uh, but we use it 
as part of the uh, recruitment department to sort of fill up the process and, and point us in the right direction. But there's been a lot of work that's gone in from other people, including myself, myself and Thomas, that have aligned that to the thinking of what we actually want to find per position. So, you know, can we make the data work towards the criteria that we're looking to recruit and then everything's aligned, everything's simple. And then the really strong eyes in the recruitment department, I've got some top people there, can do their work and, and make sure we're picking the best talent. That's kind of what I wanted to ask because everybody talks about all clubs use data these days, but I guess it's about using data correctly. So I think you mentioned that it got one of the best data-led models going. So how does that actually work on a day-to-day basis? Well, the, the coolest thing about the data is it's Matthews. So it's it's unique. It's not shared. We don't we don't share it with another Premier League club. So there's a marginal gain opportunity there for us because we're 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 using the the numbers our way. A lot of people that say they have data is correct, uh, but it a lot of the time it's a shared resource. So where's the marginal gain there? Um, they're sharing that resource with a lot of other clubs, and you know that's probably the reason why Brentford and Brighton are doing so well, punching above the weight in the best league in the world. And then you've got your own, I think you've called it an algorithm before as well. So I guess that's something Brentford benefit from as well, right? My algorithm or data resource goes way back to the lower levels of English football. Uh, I think it's well documented that I had to come up with a solution when I was offered the opportunity to become assistant manager at Carlisle United. Uh, I had to still find players. I had to still be the head of recruitment. So I came up with a a data mechanism that allowed me to still identify them players whilst doing my job as an assistant manager stuck in, obviously, Carlisle, which is very north. There's a rigorous recruitment system at Brentford. If the recruitment team find a player, Lee will do his own checks, and then... And we'll have all of the resources and the backup information that will that will effectively allow us to present that and get that through and get that player signed. But I'll believe it if they believe it, and that's what I always say to them. And then it's the same with Phil. He'll believe it if I believe it, you know? And Thomas will believe it when we put it to the coaches at the right time, if I believe it and I'm pushing it in the right way. So there's a lot of trust within the recruitment circle, if you like, from all the individuals involved. And it'll come down to, you know, everybody knows what we're looking for. Everybody knows the criteria. Everybody knows what we need in the squad and as it escalates through the levels it's more mine and Phil and Thomas's responsibility to understand where, where it fits now yeah because you can you can find a very good player world-class talent that might just not fit or it might block a pathway for one of your younger players well we've sat in front of all these players and told them there is a pathway and told them there is a plan so it's important we stick to that so sometimes you just can't sign the player but when it fits and there's an opportunity it's about everybody believing in it. And there's a lot of people that need to say yes for him to come into the club. In the end, it all boils down to trust. But if the scouts and coaches come to you with a player they really like, but you're not convinced, is that it? Yeah. <laughs> I just, I just, I just, want, just wanted to know. It's, of course, it's, that sounds very black and white. And I think that's, that's also a, a big thing. If Matthew feels that I don't like the player, then he's hugely respected. The manager always has the final word, or so he thinks anyway. I've always wondered whether it's actually any fun signing players. Only the very, very last bit when he's doing a photograph with them at the end, having signed the contracts, that bit's enjoyable. Director of football, Phil Giles. And then you can put the pen down and go, right, job done. We want the next one. But the rest of it, no, the rest of it can be um, fairly intense, stressful, 
detailed negotiations. The, 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 the least fun bit is when you end up having to pull out of a deal for whatever reason. That's that's not the fun bit because, you, you know, you feel like letting people down who you try to work with try and get deals done. Overall, no. It's no <laughs> fun whatsoever. Two players who were convinced to join Brentford were... Christian Norgard and I'm CDM at Brentford. Ben me and I'm a centre-half. Christian Norgard joined while the club was still in the Championship in 2019, which was a bit of a strange decision given that he left Fiorentina, a decent top-flight team in Serie A. Obviously, had I played 36 games for Fiorentina, it would have been a different story, but um, I only played six games. And then Thomas called me around winter time. He's like, I need a six. We've seen your footage from your time in Brunby before you went to Fiorentina. You're exactly the type we need. And I thought, oh, hold on, let me give it a chance here in Fiorentina first. But coming towards the end of the season, uh, the club made it pretty clear that I could find another club if I wanted to. And then, yeah, I just had some further talks with Thomas and Rasmus Angerson, who was here at the time. You could just sense that Brentford were doing something different than a lot of other, other clubs. And I just wanted to be part of that, uh, part of that thing here. Yeah. One thing that's changed at Brentford at the turn of the year is their training ground. Beforehand, it wasn't exactly elite. At one stage, the club's canteen also doubled up as their gym. Players would be tucking into a bowl of cereal while their teammates pumped weights right next to them. I was ready for the grind when I when I came here, even though it's not the prettiest of training, training grounds. They'd done the best with what they had. Big gym that had been temporary put up and the, the changing rooms were, were split up into two. Horse cabins, a lot of it, but none of it really bothered me. Like, you know, I was there to, to play football. They were a bit scared of it actually showing me the training ground, but um, I think it was good for me to see. But Brentford have ways of convincing you. The whole project they presented in front of me was just so specific and they just done their homework on me and where they saw the club direction. And, and I think that transfer window was, I can't think of a better transfer window of any club around that level because they bought in what, six key players who's still key players. Now Pontus Jansen left, but everyone else was still starting in the Premier League in their second season. I think that's pretty impressive. Ben Mee joined Brentford from Burnley, following their relegation at the start of the 2022-23 season. It's just a club that I felt was, was, was right for me um, to go in there. Young, a lot of young players, you know, myself being one of them. So, um, But now coming in and being able to be that older head in, in a group of young players was something that I, I quite I quite fancied. When Brentford signed him, I'll be honest, I wasn't sure about the kind of impact he'd make. It was a different style of play that was required from him. Coming into the system, they, they fully believed that, you know, I could I could fit in and, and do a good job. And yeah, otherwise they wouldn't have signed me, I think. You know, obviously I've got my defensive strengths, but hopefully I've shown a little bit more about me than, than what people have probably seen previously. So so it was nice to be able to to come and show that and express myself a little bit more than just obviously blocking, heading and, and defending as you know as a lot of people have seen me over the years. For over a decade, Ben Mee had been playing fairly route one football. Sorry if you're listening, Sean Dyche. But Brentford don't play that way. I wanted to know how he had to adapt to a different style. I think differently for from the way I was used to playing, sort of that sort of methodical play, obviously the, the analytics side of it, the way the approach things set piece wise all the information that that's that's needed it's quite overwhelming at the beginning I think if it was a young player coming in and straight into the team it, it'd be quite difficult to go out on the pitch and remember everything that was actually put in front of me you know for the first bit of the season but being a bit more experienced I was I was able to sort of grasp it a little bit quicker and 
yeah, I was able to sort of pick it up pretty quickly. Did they basically sit you down in a room, showed you a spreadsheet with a load of numbers and were like, yeah, just work, work that out? Not so much the numbers, but um, obviously we've got the set-piece coaches along them lines, yeah, analysis that, that's, that's uh, involved, you know, where to be on the pitch at what times. It's, it was all new to me, you know, con- compared to what I've been used to for, for 11 years. Did you say where to be on the pitch at what times? Yeah, so like from goal kicks and, and during the play, how close do you want to be to someone or how far away and yeah just like trying to work that in your mind as you play in the game is, is quite difficult I think especially you know if you if you're sort of new to first team football or or anything like that but you know I could sort of process it fairly fairly well. So was it not something you'd ever really done that in depth before in terms of maybe defending but not goal kicks and then when Brentford have the ball this is where you need to be? Yeah I mean that, that's more of a modern way of doing it now that's you know you know my, my previous club we weren't really known for doing that we always had our shape and you know defensively but it was more I guess off the cuff attacking wise but the idea here create more get bodies forward attack more take more risks that was that was a big thing for me the risk side of it you know I remember speaking to Thomas about it and I think we were either losing or drawing in a game and I've looked over to him like do you want me to go up for a throw and he's like yeah I always go up every single time like no no doubts about it and I was like okay fair enough that's the way it's done so that's that's uh you know really refreshing for me to to go and play like that and yeah one reason why I really enjoyed this season as well let's get back to technical director Lee Dykes and how he goes about creating his teams football's about building squads not individuals just for people that assume that if you buy a player who's a 10 out of 10 and you move him to another club he's going to immediately be a 10 out of 10 why is it so important to look at the bigger picture well, it's massively important because, you know, to give you an example, I was once asked some advice by a very good friend who was managing in the championship and he, he was struggling with a left-side centre-back, but I knew very well. And I told him that he needed, in my opinion, he needed to sign a right-winger for that left-side centre-back. And he looked at me very strange. He was like, what do you mean? I said, well, his biggest asset is his long distribution, his, his diag work. And if you bring somebody in with your game philosophy, the way you want to play, that's really good in the air, you'll start to get the best out of this centre-back in possession. And that's an example of how you have to think when you're looking at your squad formation and your squad models. There's another aspect that might surprise you. There aren't actually 11 positions on the pitch. There are 16, obviously. Ryan Giggs was a very different left winger to Cristiano Ronaldo. There's no two ways about it. They had two different skill sets. They played in two different areas of the pitch. But if you was classifying them in their prime, they was both left wingers. So straight away you go, right, let's let's split the 11s up because there's two. Then you split the 7s up. Then you, then you look at the 9s. And if, if Brentford fans compare Morpé, Watkins and Tony, you probably have three different type of strikers there that have all worked but you probably get two different type of strikers out of them three players. So there's all of a sudden two nines. There's two tens, in my opinion. There's a sliding player and there's one that's a box entry type that's, that's more dangerous off the ball. So you start going around the pitch and you start to find different players. But in order to find the players that fit our philosophy and fit what Thomas wants and fit what Matthew and Phil want, we have to criteria them positions. We have to be very simple in that. So how many players are in the Brentford database in total? There's lots. I think I think I'm I'm on record saying eighty five and a half thousand we cover worldwide. And then, you know, we very quickly bring that down into a manageable number, say five thousand players. When did you first start scouting Kevin Sharder, for example? 
I couldn't put a date on it, but I would I would say that it was a good two year process. I would I would say um, started looking at him in the in the sort of youth levels of Germany, where, which is where we sort of first flagged him up. I think as we as we established ourselves a little bit in the Premier League, uh, there was always a target to add some real pace, power, and athleticism at the top of the pitch because we had we have good players like that: Keane, Johan, Brian good players up there you know Tony as well but to add that real frightening pace was a was a target of ours um, and then you start looking at other aspects of his game where he would fit in the squad model and very quickly a lot of people was getting the feeling and, and getting very excited about this individual we had that one in a really good place very early hence why it was done very early in the January window So back to promotion to the Premier League. And how do you recruit for a whole new challenge? First of all, don't listen to outside noise because outside noise will pull you in all different directions. That's the first thing. We focus more on research on clubs that had not done so well in the Premier League and research on clubs that had done so well. Last episode, we heard that head coach Thomas Frank was very confident that his side could compete at the highest level despite an almost total lack of Premier League experience across the team. I think that the Carabao Cup run We've been on where we beat four, five, four, five uh, Premier League teams helped. I think the, we know over time that the top three in the championship, or even top six and the bottom five, the difference is very small. I, of course, I look at all, I always try to get inspiration. So, so I looked at how Sheffield United did the year before, keeping the, the whole squad, only adding a few. I think that was, that was a, a big part of that, and I, and I knew the the way we did things here at this lovely GTEC uh, stadium. I knew that we could do something big. We knew how many goals we we, we needed to score. We knew how many goals we, we we needed to concede at a maximum, and we knew that there was more importance on getting pace, power, and athleticism into the team, and players that fit our game style. Premier League experience sometimes that can be a negative as much as a positive. I'm not saying it's never a consideration, but we just felt, felt going into that Premier League, again, looking at the data measures, that we was already well in the pack. We already felt that we was a very good team. And the Premier League experience thing is, you need some experience, yes, but does it have to be in the Premier League? I mean, if you put Real Madrid in the Premier League, right, would they go, well, we've only got Modric who's played in the Premier League, we're going to struggle. No, they probably wouldn't struggle, they'd probably do quite well, so... So, you know, you got you know, it's really, really about how good is your team, not so much about Premier League experience. While it may not be all about Premier League experience, you still need players to perform at the highest level. And Thomas Frank being head coach is integral to that. Here's Ben Mee on what makes the Dane so great. The level of detail he goes into, for me, is, is, is probably the most I've, I've uh, been involved in. You know, wanting things perfect, dead on. Being able to chat to him about, about things where, you know, I think every player has, has that feeling, you know, he's approachable, you know, in ways that um, maybe others wouldn't be open to ideas, uh, which is which is great. And and uh, yeah, I think he's always trying to take things on board as well from from players. But ultimately, you know, he's he's got a lot of knowledge about the game. And yeah, I've been really impressed with with him, with with everyone actually, the staff as well at, at the club, and and how how everyone works together. What's a detail? you and him have maybe sat down on and, and spoken about trying to improve or trying to do a little bit differently. Positions on the ball, when to play the pass, how, how to delay it, be comfortable having a few more touches and enticing players in and rather than trying to move the ball fast, which maybe I'm probably used to doing a bit more, um, getting it and giving it, maybe 
for a defender like myself, having a bit more time on it and and sort of like attracting a player is a way that has been uh, is being used now. So we're getting used to to that and yeah, just more probably on the ball stuff. Obviously, they've got the structure of uh, defensively, which which I picked up pretty quickly. It was uh, straightforward. They had have the way of defending, and and that's the structure. And then once you get it, once you know it, yeah, it's it, it worked really well for us that last season anyway. Now, if you're eagle-eared, you'll hear a bit of a theme developing. Thomas Frank, Christian Norgard, Rasmus Sankerson, FC Midtjylland. Welcome to Denmark. I knew uh, Henrik Dalsgaard who played here. I knew uh, that uh, there were some other Danish players, Andreas Bjelland, uh, Lasse Wiebe, uh, Emiliano Macondes, who I played with at the youth national team. So I knew there was a Danish um, relation. Yes, the Danish connection. And Brentford needed to turn to another Danish player in their first season of Premier League football. Things were taking a bit of a downward turn with just one win in two months. Brentford needed help. But the person they turned to was one who hadn't played football for six months and was recovering from a traumatic incident. Uh, play is going to be halted again and this does look serious. Next time on Access or Areas Brentford, the story of how Christian Eriksen joined the Bees. We didn't want to like press him to come here uh, to Brentford. I'm sure he had other opportunities as well. And maybe it was also too early for him to just jump into something after what he's been through. Brentford's connection with their community. You get to the Premier League and someone hands you a megaphone and says, people are going to listen to you now. So what are you going to use it for? And the devastating story of one of their most loved members of staff. Robert was the yeah, best person I've ever met. We met when he was 19. He's always been football daft. Access All Areas Brentford was hosted by me, Jay Harris. It was written by Jay Harris and Abby Patterson. It was produced by Abby Patterson with additional production from Max Davru and Jay Beal. It was an athletic media company production. Athletic.